Join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's going to be our passage of Scripture this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be reading passages in chapter 4 and chapter 5 this morning. How many of you have some pet peeves? Oh, come on. I know that there are more out there than that. All right. I have some pet peeves. One of mine is that it does kind of perturb me that there are people that love to talk about Jesus's prophecies, but aren't as interested in walking out the commands that he's given us for today. Uh, just recently, I, uh, I saw a sign and it was, it was advertising a prophecy event. And I just kind of sighed to myself because I knew there's probably a lot of people like, yes, I want to know what's going to happen in the future but if you were to say, hey, we've got this big event on how to follow Jesus's commands and live for him today. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm busy. I got to wash my hair that day. I remember back when I had the privilege of preaching at the jail, there was a guy who had been there in and out of jail multiple times. And every time he was in, he would come uh, to our church services there. And one time I came and I preached and I preached the same thing that I do every time. It's not always the same message, but it's always the same theme. It's the gospel so that they can come to trust Christ and have their life transformed. And at the end of it, he raised his hand and he said, hey, he said, I've been in here several times. When are you going to start preaching on Revelation? And I said, I am not as worried about what's going to happen tomorrow because I want you to live for Jesus today. I want you to live for Jesus today. Now, that's not to say that prophecy is unimportant. That's not to say that we shouldn't care about how the end of all things will come. It's very important. In fact, the reason that Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians is because there has been some confusion about what's going to happen. There have been some believers in their church that have passed away and he, they are worried. What happened to those people? Jesus hasn't come back yet and they have died. Are they in limbo? What's going on with them? And so Paul writes and he reassures them. If you look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have already passed, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, let me clarify, there's some confusion. Let me give you the accurate picture of what's going to happen. Those who have preceded us in death, they're not in limbo. They haven't lost their opportunity. They will be with us forever with Jesus. Comfort one another with these words. But the main thing that Paul wants them to get a hold of in this passage is that they would continue to grow to be more like Jesus. Brethren, we would do well to make our focus to continue to grow in spiritual maturity and not just spiritual trivia. We would do well not to just gain information, but to experience transformation. 
Paul wants to communicate to them what he emphasizes to them, what he fleshes out with some specific commands in chapters 4 and 5, is he wants them to make progress in their Christian lives. He wants them to be made holy. He wants them to know the truth about the future, but he hopes that they will become more like Christ. And so we're going to read several verses here together to see this emphasis. So we read that last section of chapter 4. We're going to read the verses that lead up to that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort. We beg and we encourage you. This is something I'm strongly recommending. If those of you who remember being in school, you can remember your teacher saying, I strongly recommend that you study this, right? What was the teacher saying? This is going to be on the test. This is important. Underline it, notate it, right? Make a flashcard. Remember this. We strongly urge you, we encourage you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We have given you these commands. We have laid this out in front of you. Listen, we have just recently gone over what does it mean to be a disciple. We've talked about abiding in his word, walking in his ways, doing his works. And it isn't that, okay, I've checked those three boxes, I'm done. Paul says, I want you to abound more and more. Now, that's what, here's what that means. There is no believer in the room or watching online or listening to this later that has arrived, that is done that has, has crossed the finish line, right? Pastor Eric talked to us a couple weeks back about sometimes we think we're crossing the finish line, but it's really just a starting line. This Christian life, it's a starting line. We are working towards this work in Jesus, and this work continues on until he completes it in eternity. We want you to abound more and more. Follow the commands that we've given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. Now, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and they've wanted advice on figuring out the will of God in some situation, about some job, about some person. Should I marry this person or not? You know what? The Bible doesn't tell me if you should take that job. The Bible doesn't tell me who you should marry. But the Bible does tell me what the will of God is for your life. And the will of God for your life is sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification is this biblical word that means becoming more and more like Jesus. And we believe in instant justification and progressive sanctification. Justification means I put my faith in Jesus. It is just as if I never sinned. I am forgiven. I die today. I am in heaven because it is not on the basis of my merits and my abilities, my good deeds, my righteousness, but on Jesus. I am justified. It's like I've never sinned. I'm holy like he is. I am instantly justified and then I am progressively sanctified. See, even though I'm instantly justified, I'm not instantly made righteous, perfect. None of us are. But progressively, God makes us more and more like himself. So what is the will of God? Your sanctification. And then he breaks down what some of the sanctification looks like. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor 
not in the passion of lust, just like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, who rejects he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now skip with me over to chapter 5 and verse 19. He's given several other commands. There's this section in Thessalonians where there's these real short things that we should all be doing. But then he says in 19, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now listen, he told us in chapter 4, what is God's will? Our sanctification. And here he's praying at the end of chapter 5 that God would sanctify us completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24 is so beautiful. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Who also will do it. He will accomplish this. This is his will. This is what he wants. And he will bring it to pass. Do you know what sea glass is? I, I live near the ocean. Uh, and I never really came across a lot of sea glass. I guess it's, it's more common in some areas than others. But sea glass, if you have ever been to a place where you can, you can find it, you can collect it. Some people love sea glass because it's, it's beautiful, uh, it's, it's smooth, it, it's, it's, just, it's a wonderful thing to pick up. And some people collect it and they go to places just to go and look for sea glass. And they walk along the beach to collect sea glass. Sea glass is basically trash. It's trash. It's glass that has been discarded. It's been lost overboard. It's been thrown in a creek or a river. And then it's spent decades in the ocean. And in those decades submerged in salt water and churned by the power of the ocean against the sand, it loses its sharp edges. And it's transformed from something that we would throw in a garbage can to something beautiful. And that's what God does with us. He takes what someone would throw out and through the power of his Holy Spirit, through submersion in him over time, through the, 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 the trials of life, the churn back and forth of the things of this world, God makes us into something beautiful. Matt Chandler pointed out that the Christian life is a lot like becoming sea glass over time. And that sea glass that you find on the ocean, it's probably been in the sea for years. It's taken time. It's taken a lot of churning, a lot of grinding against the sand and the working of the salt water. It takes time. In Virginia Beach, where I was at, I didn't come across a lot of sea glass, but occasionally I would come across some garbage, some plastic. 
You see, decades ago, everything was made of glass. Pretty common to get something in a glass container, even your milk. Now everything is what? It's plastic. You know what plastic does in the ocean? It just floats. It doesn't break down. It is chemically altered and made. It's synthetic. The seawater, the salt, the sand doesn't break it down like it breaks down glass. It might wash away the dyes and the print, and it might just turn the basic color that it was when it was produced, but it will stay in the ocean forever, and when it floats up on the beach, it looks like nothing but garbage. Because it's synthetic. It's fake. And I'm afraid that in our Western culture, we have a lot of Christians that are not being transformed we don't have the, the sharp, rough edges being ground off. We have developed this chemical uh, resistance to the work of the Spirit and His progressive sanctification in our lives through the trials of life because we're not real, we're synthetic. We're fake. We're plastic. What we have in our Western culture is we have a culture of people who claim to be Christian or evangelical who are not really Christian or evangelical. Like I've told you, every, every couple of months a new study comes out and it says things like evangelicals no longer believe this. And one of the more recent ones, evangelicals no longer believe that Christianity is the ex exclusive only way to heaven. You know what I thought when I read that? Those aren't evangelicals. Because being evangelical means believing that. What you've just asked them is, do you believe what evangelicals believe is? And they don't. The term evangelical has no meaning in our culture anymore. The term Christian has no meaning in our culture anymore. What the survey shows us is that most people who identify as evangelicals don't identify with what we find to be the truth of Scripture. They identify with a political party or a cultural platform. And it's important for us to make this distinguishment because if we're not careful, we'll get wrapped up in that identity. And that is not our identity. This is our identity. This is our identity. Our belief in what the scriptures have to say, this is our identity. And if we are abiding in this word and walking in his ways and doing his works, we will be shaped by him progressively over time. But if we are not doing those things, if we have the appearance of Christianity without the substance of it, if we are synthetic, if we are fake, if we are plastic, we will not be changed. This passage tells us that if we are disciples, that we will be changed. The Lord who has called us is faithful, and He will do this. God has not failed to do His task. He has not been unfaithful in sanctifying us. The sea has not changed its substance or its manner. What has changed is what's going into it. It's no longer glass, it's plastic. And God has not changed who he is, but we have changed what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer. 
If we are what a disciple is, people who abide in his word and walk in his ways and do his works, we will be changed But God, because God is faithful and he will do it. Remember what we said. Godliness does not produce a relationship with God. A relationship with God produces godliness. Godliness does not produce a relationship with God. Rather, a relationship with God produces godliness. Now, people hesitate to speak on this topic because they're afraid if we talk about sanctification, we talk about holiness, we talk about the necessity of holiness, we talk about the necessity of God changing us, we no longer acting the way that we used to, it'll take away people's assurance of their salvation. And I don't want to threaten anyone's assurance of their salvation, but I do hope to threaten someone's false assurance this morning. If you think that you're a Christian and you're not, what you need to know is that you're not. Scripture makes it clear that we can know we are in Christ. We can know that we are believers. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation, read 1 John. You can know that you are a believer. Scripture also makes it clear that we can know that we are in Christ while also striving to be more like Christ. There's a really good picture of this in the life of Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's talking about his, his own life. He's getting a little autobiographical, like he often does. He's talking about how he is the least of the apostles because he was an enemy of the church. That he feels, in, in, in humility, he doesn't feel like he should have the opportunity he does because he was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of the church. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10 says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What Paul tells us here is I had farther to go than the rest. And it was the grace of God who did, that did the work. But I, I labored. I worked with the Spirit. But at the end, it isn't to my credit. It is to the credit of the Lord who did this in me. God's grace made me what I am. I worked hard, but in spite of all that labor, it is the grace of God that empowered me. And so Paul says here to the Thessalonians, it is God who is faithful and God who will do it. But follow these commands. It is God who is gracious and God who enables you to be different. But I urge you and I beg you, to do what is right. I'm reminded of a pastor who he told a story about he and his wife were praying for a child and, and they became pregnant. And when they learned that they were pregnant, they gave God praise, they praised him, and then they prayed throughout that pregnancy and through every complication and every doctor's appointment. They prayed, and when it came time to, to go to the hospital to deliver this child, they, they prayed. But there came a moment in the delivery room where the doctor looked at them and said, it's time to push. And this pastor said, I did not go. Well, let's pray. He said, I said, let's push. Obviously, he wasn't the one doing the pushing, but... Uh, 
They had prayed, and they knew it was only by God's grace and provision that this child would be born. But they pushed. Seeking, more, seeking to be more like Jesus does not negate the work of Christ. It's only possible because of the work of Christ. But we are urged, we are begged, we are commanded to push. We are commanded to follow these commands, to strive, to long, to be more like Jesus. And we must keep the order here correct. It always starts with God. It's always powered by Him. If it is not powered by Him, if it does not start with Him, there are two errors that we can fall into. One, we fail and we are just despondent because we're constantly making a mess of things. Or two, we convince ourselves that we're doing pretty great. And what we end up with there is self-righteousness. Throughout chapter 4, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus, that's in verse 1, that you should abound more and more. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Verse 5, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. This isn't something that people who don't know God are able to accomplish. This is only something that people who do know God are able to accomplish. Verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Verse 8, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. This work starts and ends with Christ. It starts and ends with Christ, but he calls us to be a part of it. He calls us to follow him. God doesn't force you to follow Him. And He doesn't force you to be holy. He invites us to follow Him. And He invites us to holiness. And He enables us to participate in both. Um, years ago, before Pastor Eric came and began to serve by leading the youth, that was one of my roles. And when I worked with the students, there would be times that I would, I would study a, a lesson, prepare a message to, to give. I would line up a game to play to try to get them to interact. I would go and buy snacks to have. I would even go and pick some of them up. And then they would sit there like what my dad used to say, a bump on a log and not participate. Like, hey, we got this game. We need five people to do it. There's only six people here. Not two of you can sit out. Oh, I don't want to play. All, I've, I've, done all, I've done all the work here. All you have to do is engage. Okay? <laughs> Everything's here. All you have to do is participate. Um, and I used to jokingly say, yes, I'm going to force you to have fun. But that was a joke because I couldn't force them to have fun. I couldn't force them to participate. You see, teenagers know what little children have figured out. Little children, I mean, when they're just toddlers, they figured out if they just go limp, they're just a bag of sand, right? <laughs> and you're just trying to drag them. If you ever had one do to you in a store, you know, like you're just, just a 50-pound bag of quick crate that you're trying to pull out of the store. They're not helping you at all. And the students figure they can do that emotionally. I'm here, but I'm not engaged at all. 
This is what we do spiritually. God has made it all possible. He has made the way. He has done all the work. And He asks us, He invites us to engage and be part of it. God will not force you to follow Him. And He will not force you to be holy. But He has made it possible for you to do that. And listen, I thought my games and my lesson and my snacks were all awesome. But they weren't that great. I mean, it wasn't life-changing. What God has done for us, what He has provided, what He has prepared for us, it's everything. It's everything. I believe that when we participate, this work of God moves us. And Paul gives us a glimpse of how this works practically in chapter 4 in those verses that we have not yet read. Verse 10. He's talked about, I don't need to talk to you about brotherly love because you love one another and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He says, listen, here's a, here's a thing that you're just kind of naturally inclined to, but we, we urge you to continue and to abound more and more that you aspire that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Paul is telling us that when we follow these commands, when we seek to be engaged in this calling, the sanctification that the Lord has called us to, even in the areas where we're already doing pretty great, that we would abound more and more, that we would aspire, that we would desire to be more like Jesus than we are today. Do you aspire to be more like Jesus in 2023 than you were like Jesus in 2022? Do you aspire to be more like Christ next week than you were the week before? Do you desire to become a saint of old who has walked with Jesus for decades? Do you aspire to that? If you do, not only does it enable you to live a quiet and peaceable life, it enables you to relate to outsiders well and to one another, but also lack nothing. That's how 12 ends. That you may lack nothing. I think practically this is how we see sanctification and the work of the Lord move us forward. John Piper once pointed out that the more satisfied we become in Christ, the less tempting the supposed satisfactions of sin become. The more satisfied we become in Christ, the less tempting the supposed satisfaction of sin becomes. The more we live life in Christ, the more we realize we lack nothing. You know that moment, you're at a party, or it's Thanksgiving, right? And someone offers you a piece of pie, 
And at any other point in your life, you would say, absolutely. But in that moment, you say, no, why? Because you've already had three pieces of pie. <laughs> right? Because you've already had turkey and dressing and mashed potatoes and a cupcake and jello that somehow counted as a side dish, right? You've eaten all of these things and you are so full, you can't eat another thing, right? Sometimes we find a way. <laughs> but in that moment, it's less appealing because we're already full. We're already satisfied. And when we do these things, when we live as Paul is urging the Thessalonians and Christians to live, we become more and more satisfied. And we realize that we lack nothing. Listen, every time Satan tempts you, he's going to start by telling you that you're missing out. It's going to convince you that you're, you don't have what you could have. And the more and more we walk with Christ, the more we recognize, I got all I need. I lack for nothing. God, through his work, through his sacrifice, through his gospel, through his son, through his spirit, has provided me everything I need. I lack for nothing. When we participate in this calling, to holiness, we come to realize we lack nothing and what the world has to offer becomes less and less appetizing. It might be that you're here and you recognize this thing in your life that you continue to fall prey to. You know that it is garbage. You know that it is destructive to you. Friend, let me encourage you to find satisfaction in Christ so that you have no hunger for those things. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd work in our hearts that we would be people who are made into the image of your Son. We are transformed, that we are more and more satisfied in you and less and less enticed by the things of this world. Lord, I thank you for what you have done to make all of this possible. The work you have accomplished to set the table that you have brought us to, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and made righteous. Lord, may we not neglect what you have provided for us. May we take full advantage of what you have bought for us at a high price. We pray these things in the name of your Son. If you would just remain in a spirit of prayer there at your seat, they're going to begin to play and to sing. It's an opportunity for you to respond to what the Lord has spoken to you about. And it might be that there is some particular area of your life that God is working on you and you know that you need to come towards him. You need to fully engage. There is something that you are finding satisfaction in the world where you need to find satisfaction in Christ. Confess that to him. It might be that you're just overcome with gratitude. Thanksgiving that God has purchased this. He's made it possible. He's prepared the way and you want to give him praise whatever the need.
Take a moment now and respond as they lead us.